We've been studying Paul's letter to the Corinthians for the past six weeks. And if there's one thing we can't fail to notice, it's that the Corinthian church was in a bit of a mess. It was full of problems, sins, division, and heresy. We, we sometimes view the early church through these rose-colored spectacles. Uh, but our, one, uh, our study of 1 Corinthians, I think, uh, leaves us in no doubt that the early church could actually be quite dysfunctional. Uh, nevertheless, the Corinthian church was blessed in all kinds of ways. For a start, it is God who had established this church. It hadn't just come about um, by chance. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, God called you into fellowship with his son Jesus. In other words, God wanted this church to exist. And God sent the Apostle Paul, the most successful church planter ever, to form this little community of Jesus followers in Corinth. In the first instance, he stayed with them for a year and a half, and then he nourished them uh, by uh, sending letters and with some subsequent uh, visits. And even though Paul has heard about some of the terrible things that are happening in the Corinthian church, he doesn't hesitate to affirm that Christ is in their midst. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Christ is with them, and the evidence of that is the gifts that exist within the church. They've been enriched with all kinds of speech, and that probably includes the gifts of prophecy, uh, preaching, teaching, evangelism, praying in tongues, and so on. And they've been given all knowledge. In other words, uh, the church has access to wisdom, insight, discernment, and truth. This is a gifted church. They have all the resources they need to build God's kingdom in the city of Corinth. It's hard to imagine a more exciting church plant, ordained by God, established by the Apostle Paul, furnished with a tremendous array of spiritual gifts, almost certainly growing, Uh, God clearly has a purpose in mind for this little church in Corinth. And we think, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be part of something like that? Well, we are part of something like that. God has called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus, God has brought us into this little community. Granted, I'm not the Apostle Paul, and that's where the analogy breaks down, but I believe that I have been called to this church as I believe that each one of you has been called. And that is exciting, that God has a purpose and a plan for us. And right from the start, when this church was just a handful of people, God resourced us with the gifts that we needed to grow and thrive. And God is still doing that. And we are growing. God clearly has a purpose in mind for this little church. And that is why 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is so important, because it's a warning against the possibility of falling from a place of blessing. It's a warning against complacency. Paul even fears this for himself. Last week, uh, we were hearing about self-discipline. And in chapter 9, verse 27, Paul writes, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. In other words, he disciplines himself so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. What is the prize that Paul is talking about? 
It's not his salvation because that is eternally secure. No, Paul is concerned that he could lose his usefulness. He fears that any spiritual sluggishness could lead to him being disqualified from serving God and fulfilling the purpose that God has for his life. Uh, That is the prize that Paul fears losing. And he proceeds to give an example from Israel's history. The Exodus, when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. It's a pivotal story from the Old Testament. Israel were a uniquely blessed and privileged nation. Even one of the great superpowers of the day, Egypt, couldn't keep them in slavery because God's hand was upon his people. Paul says our ancestors were all under the cloud. You remember how when the Israelites escaped from Egypt, they were guided by a pillar of cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. To say they were all under the cloud is to say they all experienced God's guidance and protection. Moreover, we're told that they passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. That means that they voluntarily and unconditionally placed themselves under Moses' leadership. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, referring, of course, to the way that God miraculously provided for them in the desert, the, the, the manna, a kind of bread-type substance, and the quail, which is a, a game bird, and the water that came forth from the rock for them to drink. Paul even goes as far as to say that Christ was with them. He accompanied them. God's people didn't yet know Christ. Jesus wouldn't be born for uh, over a thousand years. Uh, And yet he was with them. And we know that God had a great purpose for his people to enter and take possession of the promised land. God was leading his people out of Egypt so that they could establish themselves in the land that he had promised to give them. This is incredibly exciting. It's an amazing thing to happen to this uh, tiny nation. Now, we're talking about three communities today. The community of God's people who took part in the Exodus, the community of the Corinthian church, and us, the community here at St. Andrew Springfield. And when we read the story of the Exodus, it's not hard to see uh, the link between these three communities. We have all been delivered from the domain of darkness, that is Egypt. All of us have been freed from slavery. The Exodus community was freed from slavery in Egypt in a very uh, physical and geographical way. And the Corinthians, ourselves, and all other Christians have been freed from slavery to sin and death. Just as the Exodus community was uh, led through the waters of the Red Sea and baptized into Moses, uh, so all Christians have been baptized into identification with our great leader, Jesus Christ. Paul says the Israelites ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. I wonder whether that rings any bells. I hope it does, because there's an obvious connection with communion. Every week, we share a spiritual meal as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, that we can open the pages of the Old Testament and we can read about a community much like our church. They lived together, God blessed them, cared for them, guided them, was intimately involved in their affairs, And Christ was in their midst in a strange and glorious way. God had a plan for the Exodus community. 
God had a plan for the Corinthian church, and God has a plan for us. Three communities with incredible potential. So where does the story go from here? Well, Israel blew it. The Corinthians were on the verge of blowing it, and we could blow it. Let's see how. Firstly, Israel. After Paul lists all those blessings, he writes, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that God blessed this nation so much, but in terms of their conduct, the way they were living, God was not pleased with most of them. And, and, and to say most of them, well, that's a total understatement because only two people from that generation entered the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Virtually the whole uh, generation was replaced before they were able to enter the promised land. I mean, that is a total tragedy, isn't it? This hopeful group of Israelites, they left Egypt, leaving behind them slavery and tyranny and abuse. God was with them, guiding them, sustaining them. Christ was in their midst, and they were meant to enter and take possession of the promised land, but they didn't do it. Instead, they spent 40 years wandering aimlessly in the desert. In the end, it was the next generation who accomplished the very thing that they were supposed to accomplish. How could it have gone so badly wrong for them? What happened? Well, in a word, idolatry. Paul mentions a number of sins, pagan revelry, sexual immorality, grumbling against God, and so on. But he, he, he tops and tails this list of Israel's transgressions with a warning against idolatry. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. And then again in verse 14, flee from idolatry. So all these other sins that Paul talks about uh, come between these bookends of idolatry. And I think often we tend to see idolatry as just another sin, when in reality it is the root cause of all sin. Interestingly, the first two of the Ten Commandments are to do with idolatry. First one, you shall have no other gods before me. And secondly, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, Israel, Israel literally worshipped other gods. When Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, he was only gone for 40 days, and that might sound like a long time, but in the overall scheme of things, it's not very long at all. And by the time he came down, the people had made for themselves two golden calves, and they were worshipping them with pagan revelry, dancing around them naked or whatever it was they were doing. That is not a good start for God's people. The Exodus community had so much potential But they wasted it because they didn't trust God, they weren't consistently faithful to God, and they allowed themselves to be distracted. This is really important for us to hear this. The Exodus community wasted their potential because they didn't trust God, they weren't consistently faithful to God, and they allowed themselves to be distracted. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, look, this could happen to you. And hopefully the Corinthians would have been able to see that their sins were actually very similar to the sins of God's people under Moses. The Corinthians are so greatly blessed and privileged that they are taking it as a sign of God's approval. And there was almost certainly a group within the Corinthian church 
who were discrediting Paul's teaching. What does he know? Look at the way God has blessed us. God is so clearly with us. We don't have to listen to Paul. And what the Corinthians failed to understand is that their blessings were not a sign of their goodness, but a sign of God's grace. They were receiving the blessings without taking on the responsibility that came with those blessings. If an 18-year-old is given a new car, brand new car by his parents, that is a great blessing. But then if he goes out and drives that car like a maniac, it's not going to be very long before he wrecks the car. God blessed the Exodus community, but the people rebelled against God, and so they didn't fulfill the purpose for which they'd been blessed. It was their sons and daughters who entered the promised land. Of course, God's purposes were accomplished in and through Israel. Nevertheless, this generation dropped the ball. They ceased to be useful. They were disqualified from the prize. And the Corinthians, in their complacency, are in real danger of doing the same thing. And the problem, both for the Exodus generation and for the Corinthians, is that they were not distinct enough from the idolatrous pagan nations with whom they were surrounded. When Tissa's father came out to visit, he said something that struck me. He said, a a wise man learns from his mistakes, and a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. Well, here we have two communities from which we can learn, the Exodus community and the community of the Corinthian church. And as we've seen, there is an unbreakable link between those two communities and ours. And the same thing which spoiled the lives of God's people as they fled from Egypt wrecks Christian communities today. Idolatry. The Ten Commandments, the whole of Scripture, make it very clear. Uh, We are not to worship anyone or anything besides God. Worship is holding someone or something in highest esteem and dedicating the totality of our lives to that person or thing. We have been created to worship God. We are worshippers by nature. If we don't worship God, it doesn't mean that we don't worship. It just means that we worship something else. Human beings cannot stop themselves from worshipping. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. And the thing is with idolatry is that very often we tend to worship things that are in and of themselves not bad things. Family career, pleasure, our bodies, sex, money, and so on. But all of these things can be twisted and corrupted. They can all become idols in our lives. So I guess the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Have I surrendered my whole life to Jesus? Is Jesus and his church my number one priority? And if the answer to that question is no, then the following question is, What has taken God's place in my life? What has taken God's place in my life? And there are a number of questions that we could ask ourselves to help us identify the things that we worship. And for this to work, we need to answer these questions uh, honestly to ourselves as we go through. So the first thing, what do I sacrifice most to? To what do I give most time, money, energy, and thought? What do I sacrifice most to? What makes me happiest? Is it my relationship with Jesus? Or is it something else? What makes me happiest? What do I boast about? We looked at this the other week, didn't we? Let the one who boasts, boast 
only in the Lord. What do I boast about? What do I desire more than anything else? Righteousness, holiness, godliness, contentment, or something else? Riches, respect, popularity, beauty, pleasure. What am I angry with God about? What am I angry with God about? You know those times when we think that God isn't doing a very good job at being God? What does it make us think that? What are we angry with God about? What am I most passionate about? What do I get really excited about? Now, there are all kinds of answers that we could give to those questions. But if the same answer keeps cropping up, uh, there's a good chance that we've made that person or thing into an idol. I don't know about you, but when I start asking myself those kind of questions, I invariably identify some things in my life that need to be put back in their proper place. I realize that I've got my priorities wrong. I need to remove certain things from their pedestals and put Jesus back in his rightful place as Lord of my life. And if we don't do this reordering individually and corporately as a church, if we don't make Jesus the object of our worship, then we will sleepwalk into uselessness. If we don't make Jesus the object of our worship, we will sleepwalk into uselessness. We'll be, we'll be disqualified from the prize. We'll be like the Israelites, wandering around in circles and achieving very little. If we don't come up to scratch, we'll be saved, but we just won't have the impact that we were meant to have. I mean, how sad would that be? Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Exodus generation thought they're on solid ground. They thought we're God's people. Things ought to go well for us no matter what. Wrong answer. If we go chasing after idols, things are not going to go well for us. Likewise, the church in Corinth thought they were standing firm. They were so blessed that they became overconfident. They thought that their privileges would never end in spite of their conduct. And Paul says, no, you're getting complacent. You need to realign yourself with the truth of the gospel. You need to flee from every kind of idolatry. You need to get your house in order. That is what Paul is saying to them. And for us here in Springfield, it's really exciting. We're a relatively new church plant. We're growing. God has furnished us with gifts and resources. But like the teenager who's been given the brand new car, we've got to drive it responsibly. We've got to enter into the privilege and responsibility of these great blessings. And that means rooting out every form of idolatry and committing ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, it's tempting to think, yeah, but I'm just one person. The success or failure of the church doesn't depend on me. Well, in a way, it does, because you're not just one person. You're an integral part of the body of Christ. If one person is going off track, it affects the whole community. Uh, We saw this the other week. Paul wrote, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? We're in this together. If a body loses its eyes or a foot or a hand, it becomes disabled. It can't do what it was meant to do. Of course, we know uh, that Jesus is victorious and the church will share in Christ's victory. Nothing can change that. The question is, how effective is this generation going to be? 
How effective are we going to be? Are we going to fulfill our calling? Or are we just going to go round in circles before handing the baton on to the next generation and hoping that they will do a better job than we did? So out of these blessed communities, the Exodus generation blew it. The Corinthians, they were on the verge of blowing it. And we could blow it, but I don't believe we will. And one of the assurances that Paul gives us is this. He says, God is faithful and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Often the things that we idolize are great temptations for us. We're constantly tempted to replace God with other things. But with those temptations, there will always come a way out, a God-given way out. We can break the idolatry in our lives. And uh, I think every person in some way struggles uh, with idolatry. Uh, But we can break the hold that idolatry has over us, but I would suggest that we cannot do it on our own, which is why we are not just a collection of individuals, but the body of Christ. So let us heed this warning from Israel's history. Let's flee from idolatry. Let's make Jesus central, and let's fulfill our purpose in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've read today about this strong warning that the Apostle Paul gave to the church in Corinth uh, from the Exodus generation who had so much potential and didn't do the very thing that they were called to do. And we recognize that this warning for the Corinthian church is just as applicable to us. We recognize that uh, we can get distracted. We can get our priorities wrong. Uh, We can take our eye off the ball. And we pray, Father, that we won't do that. We pray that we'll keep reordering our lives to make sure that your son Jesus is right at the center. Father, we know that we have tremendous potential as a church, and we pray uh, that we will fulfill that potential and that we will fulfill the purpose to which you have called each one of us into this community. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.